for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to put it right up here, because this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus wrapping up the greatest message ever preached. Let's uh, read it. Therefore, everyone. Therefore. You know what a therefore is? You've got to look and see what it's there for. It's a connective. So in light of everything he just said in Matthew 5, 6, and the majority of chapter 7, leads into this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation where? On the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on what? Sand. The rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Would you have been amazed? We're amazed going through it, right? The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So there was power behind the punch, right? Father, thank you for your word tonight as we close out the amazing Sermon on the Mount. Lord, you left us a treasure that surpasses any writing anywhere from any wise man, scholar, learned man. There is no one that can compare to what you left us here. And as we finish it up, bring it home to us. Help us to understand it. And let us leave with a, an eternal, everlasting deposit of wisdom and understanding in our hearts. Can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, tonight, speak to my heart. Change me with this. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, the surest foundation. The surest foundation. All right. Okay. Now, Matthew 7, 24 through 29 wraps up this great Sermon on the Mount. And as we come to the close, uh, we see that Jesus covered virtually every area of life. You, you can't name me a relevant area of life that wasn't covered in Sermon on the Mount. It's there somewhere in Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not saying Sermon on the Mount is better than the rest of the Word of God, but as far as a succinct, um, all-inclusive message with one delivery of it, the whole thing, it stands alone. I can't think of another sermon in all of history that even comes close. Jesus, God the Son, covers everything from the Beatitudes and the kingdom character qualities that bring blessing, being merciful, so on and so forth, to how to handle persecution, to our purpose as salt and light, remember that? To keeping your heart free of anger, hatred, and lust. Jesus covered all of that. Then the command to love your enemies, to the necessity to forgive, you need to be forgivers, to the right motives for prayer and fasting and giving. He covered all of that. Then he moved on to the importance of what your treasure is and of not serving money over God. Don't ever let money be your master. Let Jesus be your master and the money will be taken care of. And then he taught, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What was that old song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? They stole that from Jesus. All right? Now, that's in the first two chapters. But then we come to chapter 7. He teaches about the right and wrong kind of judgment. Remember that? It's not that we're not to judge. We're just not supposed to do the wrong kind of judging. Uh, he teaches on persevering in prayer. The two roads to life. Broad road, narrow road. And the reality of true and false Christians. There's true ones, there's fake ones, phony ones, phony baloney, macaroni, 
fake tares next to the wheat. They say the right things, but they're not saved. They're playing the religious game. Jesus dealt with that. Now we come to the grand finale. Jesus' final word to wrap it all up. Uh, and he's dealing with what I see as the number one reason America is collapsing while we sit here. I'm going to tell you why. The importance of the foundation you choose to build your life on. All right? So he's dealing with foundations. In light of everything he just said, he says, therefore. Let me sum this up. Here's, here's my final uh, addition to this message. The all-importance of your foundation in life. Your foundation. And he uses the illustration of a house and the foundation that it's built on. All right, so he's, using a, he's giving a parable here. He says, watch this now. Everybody who hears these words of mine, have we heard his words? Yes, we have. And does what with them? Puts them into practice. Is like a wise man, a smart man, somebody that's thinking straight. Okay? It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. All right? Now, let's just take the parable apart a little bit. The house in the illustration is your life. You build your life. We're all right now building our lives. From the time that you were born and could walk and talk and make decisions. The decisions you made based on the values you had chosen. The truths you accepted. You made decisions through them. And those different various things built your life. We're all builders. We're builders of our life. Right? Yes, God's involved. Yes, he's building Christ in us. But Jesus is talking to his followers here and he says, listen, you can hear me all day long. But if you don't do what I say, if you don't put it into practice, you just heard a good sermon. What good did it do you? Like the person came up to me one Easter Sunday, slapped me on the back and said, praise God, Pastor Jeff, you bless me every Easter. <laughs> well, that said to me, you're hearing me, but you're not hearing me <laughs> because you'd be here more than Easter. I said, thanks so much. You made my day. Okay. So the house in the illustration Jesus is giving us is your, your life. It's your life. What are you building into your life? It includes everything. Let me just name a few of them. Uh, your worldview comes from what you accept as true, from the values you embrace. Your worldview, the ethics you choose to live by, uh, the morals you embrace as your own, your beliefs, the principles that guide you when making decisions. Because you make decisions based on what you've accepted as true and the values you've embraced. They are, your decisions are the byproduct of what you have decided is right and wrong, good and bad, and something worth living by. Your house, my house, our life includes our walk with God, our earthly relationships. It includes horizontal and vertical relationships. It also includes your eternal destiny and your divine purpose. That's your life. Your life. Jesus said that all these things make up your life. And your life is built on and flows out of the teachings he just delivered if you make him your teacher. He said, you heard me now. You've heard me for, you know, we can say three chapters but you've heard me, now what are you going to do with it? You can just say, well, that was an incredible message. Wow, no one talks like him, and go out and do none of it. Or you can do it, live by it, practice it, stake your life on it, build your life around it so that everything in your life, all the decisions you make uh, are, are built in and flow out of the teachings of Jesus. 
He's not just my Savior, He's my philosopher. He's my counselor. He's my guide. He's my teacher. And if He or His Word can't agree with it, it's not for me. I'll tell you further, it's not true. If you only hear what he said and don't put it into practice, your house is built on sand. But if you hear what he said and do it, then you're building your life on a rock foundation. This is so important because that's the way our nation started. Don't tell me it didn't. Don't go into all this. Oh, that's not all true. It is true. I've read the writings of the Puritans, the pilgrims, the the original writings. They dedicated the whole country to Christ. And, and to scripture and, and to pleasing God. And they came here so they could find the liberty to worship the true and living God. So our nation started out right, but oh, has it gone sideways? And so what we're watching is the great crash Jesus talks about at the end. Because you can look great, but have a terrible foundation. The truth is told in your life and mine, not by how we look on the outside, but by the foundation we built on the inside. What is your foundation? Does Jesus and his word, do they have the final say in your decision making and mine? Do I access the word? Do I inquire of God before making a major decision? Do I seek his wisdom out? Or do I turn to Oprah or Dr. Phil? Or some other worldly whatever. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. If you build your life on his teachings, your foundation, the rock is Christ. He's the, somebody said, he's the rock that doesn't roll. Amen? The key is not just hearing them, but doing them, obeying them, making them, his teachings and the teachings of the word, the non-negotiable guiding lights of your life. That's the whole message. Can I trust the Bible to give me the counsel I need for everything. The Apostle James wrote about the importance of doing it and not just hearing it. Listen to what he says. And remember, it's a message to obey, not just to listen to. So don't fool yourselves. For if a person just listens and doesn't obey, he's like a man that looks at his face in a mirror, but as soon as he walks away, he can't see himself anymore or remember what he looked like. When you look into the Word, you see who you should be. You see who you should be. And when you put it down, if you don't go do it, you forget what you saw. He goes on and he says, If anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law for free men, what is God's law for free men? It's the new covenant teaching. It's the teaching of Christ and the apostles and Christian living from the word. That's the law for free men. You will know the truth. It'll make you free. He will not only remember it, what he looked like, but he will do what it says. And God will, listen to this, greatly bless him in everything he does. If you do it, don't always feel good to do it. It's not always easy to do it. Have you ever really felt like forgiving an enemy? If you're waiting for the feeling, it's never going to come. But you obey the word of God, the the law for free men. Okay? Just one example. When you go to tithe, you know, your flesh says, better not give that away. You need it. God's word says, give it and I'll take care of you. That's the law for free men. So you do it even though it doesn't feel right or bless you all the time. So it's when we put Jesus' teachings into practice uh, that we will be blessed. you got to do it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So he goes from there. He next addresses the storms that inevitably come and beat on both the foundation and the house that you have built to test how wise you were as a builder. 
Jesus says, you know what? It's not a few people, but for everyone, storms are going to come. Jesus taught it. He said, here you are. You heard my message. You heard what I told you for life and living. I told you how to forgive, how to this and that and the other. The whole Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the New Testament and, and of course, the Old Testament, ever relevant. Um, so I told you all that, but now the storm's going to test whether or not you're doing it or you just heard it and walked away. Because the storm is going to test the foundation and what you have built on it. It's going to come. Jesus said the rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew. And they beat against that house. This is a big storm, folks. The word beat means to rush violently upon or to slam against. So Jesus is using a a, a very strong word here uh, that the storms that come are going to beat on, violently hit the house you've built and the foundation you've built on and test it. Have you ever noticed that you don't know how well something is built until it experiences a storm? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that about a car or a boat or anything? You never know how well it's really put together until it's tested by a storm or something that really puts that thing to the test. Then you find little leaks here and there and little troubles here and there and creaking and snapping and crackling and breaking. and You know what I'm talking about, right? You know I like to cycle. I take my bike in to get it worked on every once in a while. And um, last time I took it in, um, they had to do a lot of work, just tuned it up. I'm talking about my bicycle that I pedal, okay? So they did all this work. He said, how is it? I took it out for one little ride around the store. I should have gone further. I took it one little ride around the store. Oh, yeah, it sounds great. Feels great. Great, great, great. Here's your money. I'm going home. Then I went on a 20-mile ride. And on that 20-mile ride, there was wind. And there were hills. And all of a sudden, those gears weren't working like he promised. How did I find out? The test. And it's that way with your faith in mind and what we're building into our life. And what is our foundation? How good is it? Is it rock? It's a storm that brings you to your knees. Just like the disciples in the storm at sea, they cried out to Jesus, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. That storm was testing the faith they had at that time. And Jesus said, oh, you know, okay. He gets up and yawns and tells the wind to stop and the waves to quit rolling. And they ask the million-dollar question, who is this guy? And Jesus, I can hear him saying, that's what I've been waiting for you to ask because I'm not just a long-haired guy with sandals on saying nice things to people, doing some neat miracles. I happen to be God, and the weather obeys me. Okay. We also notice in Jesus' description of this storm that it comes in stages. First rain falls, then a rising flood, and then to top it all off, howling, destructive winds. All together, those three slam against the house, threatening to destroy it. Jesus didn't say if, he said when. How many of you have had a storm or two since you were saved? The rest of you, seriously, would you come lay hands on me? I'm going to try that again. How many of you have had a storm? Yeah. If you saved more than a week, you're going to find out that getting saved didn't keep you from storms. All right. We note in the parable that the house's fate is not dependent on what color of brick was used to build the house. Didn't matter. Or the beautiful landscaping, that didn't matter. Or whether it's one story or two story, that doesn't matter either. Or what kind of wood was used for the frame, that doesn't matter. None of that matters. The fate of the house, the fate of your house and my house, your life and my life, swings on the hinge of the foundation it's built on. The foundation is everything. No matter how you look on the outside, what foundation is being built under the surface? We've seen a lot of houses go up in the last few years. 
And the very first thing they do is they pour that foundation, solid cement. And it has to go through a test to see if it's good. The most important part of that house is the foundation. Because that's going to last over time. Not the frame, not the outer part, the foundation. Paul the Apostle talked about foundations in 1 Corinthians 3. He says this, God in his kindness has taught me how to be an expert builder. So notice he said, spiritually, let me tell you how to be an expert builder. For your house and my house, I've laid the foundation and Apollos has built on it. What was the foundation that Paul laid? Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that. He who builds on the foundation that's already there must be very careful. And no one can ever lay any other real foundation than that one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is the foundation of your life and you're building your house on top of that foundation and the house is being built by obeying his word and letting him be your guide, then let the storms blow. The house, Jesus said, will not collapse. Did you catch that? That, that, So all of this, Jesus, of course, being a carpenter, he knew all about foundations. Now, whereas Jesus talked about a storm testing the foundation, Paul talks further in 1 Corinthians 3 about our foundation also being tested when we give an account for our life. So let's get real now. Jesus says, you better build your foundation on me. You better be sure that you build on top of rock and not sand. Now here comes Paul saying, at the end of your life and mine, we're going to give an account to God for what we built on top of that rock foundation. Because you can have the rock foundation and not build smart. You can have the rock foundation, but not really build your life around the teachings of Christ. Because the world's message gets to you. And you start building your life around the principles and values of the world instead of the teachings of Christ. So you can even have the rock foundation. I'm going to show you. Look at what Paul said. God in his kindness taught me how to be an expert builder. I've laid the foundation and Apollos has built on it. But be very careful what you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. No one can ever lay any other foundation than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is not talking about the foundation here so much as what you build on top of it. And that's what Jesus is telling us. You let Jesus be the Savior and Lord of your life. You start there with your salvation. But then Jesus said, you take everything that I've taught you and you weave it into your lifestyle. You live according to what you heard. You obey. You you walk the word. You don't just say great message. You walk the word. You live the Word. You practice the Word. You stand on the Word. What did Peter stand on when he stepped out on the water? He wasn't standing on the water. He was standing on the Word of Jesus. Come. And on that Word, he stood and walked on water. So the message here is not just the foundation, because I've seen people get a right foundation and build all wrong. Because the world seduces them, and they end up more worldly than they are godly. And that's what Paul's talking about. Listen to what he says in verse 13. There's going to come a time of testing at Christ's judgment day to see what kind of material each builder has used to build their life on. What is God going to test? Not the foundation, because we're at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the judgment seat for sin, but the judgment seat for our works and how we lived our lives out as Christians. Sin's not going to be judged, but what we did with our life as believers is going to be rewarded or not. So the whole message here is not the foundation, but what did you build on it? He says, everyone's work will be put through the fire. That means the fire of God's judgment. So that all can see whether or not it keeps its value. And what was really accomplished Then every workman, that's you, that's me, who has built on the foundation with the right materials. And what are the right materials, everybody? Talk to me. What are the right materials? 
what Jesus taught and what the Bible teaches, the Word of God. That's the building materials, all right? And that's the toolbox and the building materials. Now, he goes on and says, every workman who is built on the foundation with the right materials and, who, and whose work still stands will get his pay, will get a reward. But if the house he has built burns up, he will have a great loss. What's the great loss? Not your salvation, but the reward you would have had. Y'all tracking with me? The reward you would have had. This is not the great white throne judgment where the books are open and the book of life is open to see whether or not you're there. This is the judgment seat of Christ that happens after the rapture of the church. And how well we obeyed God, prayed, sought Him, did good works for His glory, obeyed Him in our life, bore fruit, submitted to God, resisted the devil. Our lives leave a footprint of faith based on how well we live the Christian life out, we'll get rewards. Are you there? Didn't I just read it? I'm not making this up. See, this needs to be taught more and more because people say, well, I got my ticket to fly, so I'm going to live the way I want. You better not live the way your flesh wants. You better walk with God and bear fruit. You haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you, that you would go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit will remain. Remain till what? Forever. Eternity. So that it remains. It bears the heat of the testing of God when you face Him to give an account for your life. Look what he says. If the house he has built burns up, great loss. But he himself will be saved but just like a man escaping through a wall of flames. In other words, I like to say, by the skin of your chinny-chin-chin, you're getting in. All right? By the blood of Jesus. But the sad thing is, all of the reward you could have had. Gone because you lived for you. For your glory. I this, I that, I the other. You didn't live for the glory of God. It's a strong word. But this is why Jesus said, once you get the foundation down, you need to build on it the way I told you to live. Obey me. O obey what I laid out for you. Forgive when you need to forgive. Give with the right motive. Pray with the right motive. Get into the prayer closet and seek God. Shine. Uh, be a light. Be salt. Uh, live, for, live for God. We weren't saved just to get us into heaven. We were saved to further the kingdom of God here. Right? Yeah. Jesus promised the house that is built on him will survive the fiercest storm. Jesus said the rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. It did not fall. It did not fall. It survived the megastorm. Because it had its foundation on the rock, on Christ. Then the Lord segues into telling the sad tale of the person that hears his words but doesn't follow through by living it out, obeying it, and doing it. They just hear and walk away. He says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man has built his house on sand. Rain came. Listen to this. The same storm. This storm is equal to the first storm. Same description. It's not like they came into a worse storm. It's the same storm. Same level. Same intensity. The rain came down. Streams rose. Winds blew. And beat against that house. And it fell. It fell with a great crash mega crash Jesus says here's the problem they built their house on sand that's the problem the problem was their foundation their foundation wasn't him their foundation wasn't Christ 
Their life was not built on Jesus. It was built on something else. Though having heard of Jesus or heard Jesus, they don't receive him as Savior, God, Lord, and teacher. I see him every week. They come in, listen to me preach. I almost always get the cross in there. I want them to know if they never hear another message that they heard something about Christ dying on the cross for them. And they go out. And, and, I, and I know some of them go out going, wow, I need to get right. Some of them go out and say, yeah, that was interesting. And they go on with life. And before they get home, the devil plucks out of their heart what they heard. According to the parable of the sower, he plucks right out of their heart what they heard. Got bills to pay, places to go, kids to raise, blah, 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 and they forget completely about it. They say they believe in him, but their lifestyle says otherwise. That's the hearers, but not the doers. Our churches are full of them. They say they believe in him, but their lifestyle, eh. You know, they're getting drunk on weekends and shacking up with somebody and say, oh, I love the Lord, glory to God, hallelujah, kumbaya. Do you? Can I get a little real here tonight? Some of you are thinking, oh, I wish I'd stayed home. No, listen, you're in the right place because I'm going to talk shop with you. I'm going to talk real. Okay, listen, because this is real stuff. Jesus is telling us if you don't build your life on him, sooner or later the house is crashing. Instead of doing what Jesus taught, they embrace worldly philosophies and beliefs as their guiding principles for life. They choose secularism, ungodly worldly morals, false hopes, unbiblical beliefs about God, eternity, heaven, hell, what life is about, why we're here, the great philosophical questions of life. They don't get them answered from Christ, they get them answered from somewhere else. And it leads them astray. They, they develop a worldly worldview, pattern after the false thinking of a fallen world. Their worldview, the lens through which they see life, has not been shaped by Christ or the Bible. It's shaped by the thinking of a fallen world. They turn a deaf ear to the Lord's warnings, and they take lightly His goodness to them. They build their life on false hopes regarding their soul, the afterlife, what will one day gain them entrance into heaven. They believe the lie will be my good works, wonderful me that gets me in. It won't be wonderful you or me. It'll be wonderful him. Okay? Even, even though the outward visible house may look extremely impressive and gain the admiration of people all around them, one day the storm comes. It can be a financial storm, a marital storm, a medical storm, some other unforeseen, pounding, pressing, tempestuous storm that beats against the house you built and it cannot stand because its foundation is not the rock of Christ. We're watching our whole nation collapse because now our nation is on sand and not the rock. And very quickly, the foundation of sand is washed away by the flood and the whole house crashes. Notice the Lord's emphasis. It didn't just crash during the storm. It fell with a great crash. He's emphasizing that. Mega crash. A beautiful house built on a faulty foundation collapses with a bang. What looks so impressive on the outside comes crashing down and the story is told. To everybody watching, the house was built on sand. See it all the time, right? Movie stars with gajillions of dollars, right? Fame and fortune. They suddenly die of a drug overdose. What happened there? Sand. 
I don't care how pretty you are on the outside, how handsome you are on the outside, how much money you've got. Your foundation is going to be tested. Mine is and yours is. Or they lose all their earnings and go crazy. Or we read of just how miserable they are as people when the real story is told later. The image presented is not the reality that was. Our culture is lying to people. If you get a bunch of money and fame and fortune, that is not going to make you happy. It is not going to set you up for life. It is not going to fulfill you. It is not. We have all seen the business tycoons that seem to have the world by the tail. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. But they all of a sudden take their own life. Or they lose everything in the stock market. Or it's, they're shown to be involved in some kind of crime. And the house crashes. And at that moment, they don't have any idea who they're going to turn to or what to do when they wake up and look at a pile of ashes. Is anything not built on Christ, listen to me, church, is illusory. It's a false promise. They had a great looking life on the outside. I've seen it happen a thousand times, but the foundation doesn't serve them in the time of storm. But here's what I think Christ was really driving at, and I'm going to close with this. I think he was really driving at this. When a person faces God to give account of their life. Romans 14, 12. Here's the news. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Do you see that? Romans 14, 12. Every human being is going to face God and give an account. What did you do with the life I gave you? What did you do with the talent I gave you? What did you do with the opportunities I gave you? What'd you do? How'd you respond? What'd you do with my son? So you're facing God now, and all those friends of yours, they're not there. All those people whose opinion you cared about, and that's why you worked night and day to get that car or get that house so you'd impress them, they're not there. It's just you and him. And at that solemn moment, the sand you built your life on, if you did build it on sand and not on Christ, immediately evaporates. You stand naked and helpless before the God to whom you must answer for how you lived the life he gave you. Every human being is going to face it. We give an account. I personally believe there will be a little, real little play. Now, I don't know how extensive it will be, but something like this. Here and here and here, you could have accepted my son. Here and here and here, I sent mercy drops your way. I was good to you, hoping you'd repent. Here and here and here, I sent this person and that person and the other person to reach you. And here and here and here, I stirred your conscience. Where you had a momentary uh, glimpse of rational thought regarding God and your eternal soul. And you didn't take any of them. Well, I need a good attorney right about now. The only attorney you can have is Christ and it's too late now. Because I think this is what he was driving at, Jesus. Jesus won the foundation of your life. You didn't build your life around him. And suddenly, suddenly, here's the thing. Suddenly you realize your hopes have all been false. Your beliefs were wrong. And you spent your life chasing illusions. And at that awesome judgment, your house falls with a great crash. 
That's what I think the main point was. I know these are solemn words, but hey, this is why Christ came. He came to rescue sinners like you and me. From what? From what I just described. If I didn't believe that, I'd never preach again. Why mess with it if the gospel isn't true? But it is true. And there's not another name given among men whereby we must be saved but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I want you to notice in closing the reaction of the people when Jesus was done with this. I think they, had to, I think they were shoveling gravel with their lower jaw. Right? It says, when Jesus had finished these things, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as somebody who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. In other words, they realized he was the real deal. They realized they heard the real truth. So why are we here as a church? Because of what we just read. We're going to take the gospel to as many people as the Lord lets us. We're going to go far and wide and win as many to Christ as we can. There ought to be an urgency sitting on every local church because the days are short. Christ is at the door. Surely we are in the last times. So I want to be in a church that's taking this stuff seriously. I mean, we can have fun. We can go have a good, righteous time. It's not like we're supposed to be a bunch of sourpusses. We can have clean parties and have fun and fellowship and eat and then eat some more and then eat all the time. We, we love buffets. But the thing is, we should never forget the main purpose for which we are here. Amen? All right, I'm going to take two questions, just two. So does anybody have a question about anything I've gone into, anything theological you've been thinking about? Uh, anybody that has a question? All right, right back there, Johnny. And I'll take a couple of quick questions. And this is so risky on my part because I have no idea what's coming. All right. All right, Pastor, I have three questions if I can slide a third one in. The first question is, was... Jesus is being redundant when he said, I never leave you or forsake you. Was he saying the same thing twice? And also... Wait, wait, let me be sure I get that first question. When he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, was he saying the same thing to who? Was he saying the same thing twice? Was he saying the same meaning twice? Oh, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Yes. Okay, all right, go ahead. The second question is, when Thomas touched his hands, he said, my Lord and my God, was he being redundant with that statement also? No. So was he being unnecessarily repetitive? Yes. Okay. No. Uh, because Lord is kurios, but it's interesting. He didn't stop with Lord, kurios. He, theos, you are my God. So right there, Thomas knew this Jesus, he's God. He's not just, you know, and the whole thing about putting the hand in his uh, side to show that he was flesh and blood was because already the Gnostic teaching, and when I say Gnostic, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C, it's called Gnosticism. It's the early, one of the earliest bad deceptions to attack the local church. Early on, the Gnostics, a group, rose up. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which, which means knowledge. So when they say Gnostics, the knowledgeable ones. Okay, we, we've got an inside track on the knowledge about God that the rest of you don't have. One of the clear signs of a cult. We got the inside track. Okay, but the, the message of the Gnostics was he didn't come in flesh. He was never truly flesh. God did not become flesh because the Gnostics taught that flesh and all of matter was evil. So a good God could not have taken on an evil form. So their whole message was God did not become a man and die on a cross for us as a man. 
because that would have meant he put on something evil and God can't do that. And Gnosticism was infiltrating the church like a bad flu early on. This is why you hear John in, say, let's say, 1 John. He, says, he opens up going, we handled him. We touched him. We heard him. We ate with him. What's he doing? He's, he's countering the Gnostic teaching that he wasn't a real man. No, no, we handled him. We touched him. God wrapped himself in skin. That's the Christmas message. So that's what Thomas is doing. You're not only my kurios, Lord, but you're theos, God. And now that I got my hand in your side, I can see you did come as a man. Okay, my, my last question is, in heaven, how will we know about our loved ones and, and they say we won't be married in heaven? So how does all that work in heaven? You know, that's a great question. The Bible is silent on a lot of that. Um, how are we going to know somebody in heaven? Will we know people in heaven? I have to believe we will. Now, relationship is going to be vastly different because there will be no more flesh to get involved in dysfunction or making relationships dysfunctional. There's no more jealousy, no hatred, no anger, no nothing. You're, you're redeemed. So, so, so relationships will be utterly, thoroughly, consummately pure. There's no marriage. Uh, that's gone. So how we're going to relate to one another or know one another, the Bible is largely silent. And I, you know, we all, as every theologian will tell you, where the Bible is silent, you better not talk. We can conjecture. And I think we're going to know one another. Because it says, the trumpet will blow, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, we who are alive and, and remain, walking around on earth, will be caught up together, watch this, with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, well, I don't know, that smacks of recognition to me with them. Also, when the Mount of Transfiguration happened, and here's Jesus and Moses on one side and Elijah on the other, the disciples immediately knew who they were. But they were glorified, they were from heaven. But he knew who they were. Oh, there's Moses, there's Elijah. So they recognized them right? So that tells me that the glorified bodies that we'll have in heaven are recognizable, but not in any bad way, only in a good way. You're going to shine. You're not going to worry about weight. You're not going to worry about flaws. You're not going <laughs> to, he said hair. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to worry about hair or no hair. You're not going to worry about it. Because in heaven, we're, we have glorified bodies. And all you can do to get your best idea of a glorified body, and I'll close with this, is look at the risen Jesus. He walked through doors that were closed and locked, but then ate fish. He thought, and he was there. Because one time, he didn't even walk through the door. It just says he appeared. He appeared. When the Lord caught Philip away, after he, after, uh, no, not Philip, when he caught the Ethiopian eunuch away, after Philip had baptized him, he caught him away to another town, and he was just suddenly there. Is that a little type and a shadow of what it'll be like with glorified bodies? Yes. No more need for V8 cars, SUVs motorcycles, bicycles, because you're going to think and you're going to be there. Okay, let's hey, stand. Hey. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. You know, I got a question for you, Pastor Jeff. Pastor Jeff, what can you say to uh, the, the so-called Christians that may online and uh, maybe some here and now that are going with the world against the Jews. What can you say to these people that are going, that, that, and they say they're Christian. They're, yeah. 
uh, I have to say they're very ignorant of, of some of the teaching of the Word of God, the clear teaching of Scripture. They're ignorant of it. Or they're being intentionally disobedient. They've been affected. I personally believe anti-Semitism is demonic. If you, if you look at Harvard and uh, MIT and uh, University of Pennsylvania where the president has already had to resign, um, you look at all the students. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say young mush minds who are attacking... Hamas, oh, I can't even say what they did. It's too hard to utter it. And you tell me, like the president of Harvard did, that how you treat Jews is conditional on the context? You want anybody saying that about you? Well, you can kill them if the context is right justify it anti-semitism i believe is from the pit of hell why would satan be so against the jew because through the you you hold a jewish bible in your hand okay uh god chose abraham the first jew to bring forth a nation from which and out of which and through which would come messiah so from jacob's son judah came your Savior and mine, who was a Jewish Jesus. So should we wonder that Satan hates Jews? I mean, he, he's been destroyed by Jews. The ultimate Jew, the bruiser of Satan's head. So any Christian that does that, and I'm going to tell you the truth, Luther had some anti-Semitism in him. The founder of the Lutheran church. He said some things that were very anti-Semitic. Hitler read some of Luther's writings. Luther missed it there. How? I don't know. Brilliant theologian? I don't know. But some of what he wrote and said was anti-Semitic. So you got to read your Bible. And when it says, I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, I take that seriously. Okay, now are they living for God in Israel? They're as secular and pagan as any nation in the world. But that doesn't matter because God's not done with Israel. He is not done. The day is going to come when there's going to be a national turning on the part of the Jews to Jesus. That's in the Word of God. So. You know, I taught extensively uh, here one Wednesday night on when this whole war broke out and these atrocities were happening. I taught on that, and I would encourage you to get the archives and go to the church webpage and get the archive and listen because we don't have time to go into it now. But uh, the, whole, the whole thing, uh, the Jew against the Arab, it's the ancient hatred. They went all the way back to Genesis, and Isaac and Ishmael living under the same roof. Isaac re representing faith, Ishmael representing the flesh. The, the message is, you can't have faith and flesh living under the same roof. And so you can track it all the way to today. It's not going to stop till God ends it. And God is going to decisively end it. So let's stand, can we?